My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international economic law. In this episode, I examine financial globalization. Ever since the financial crisis of 2008, questions about the relationship between international law and finance have been pervasive. They were brought to light by the subprime mortgage market or the collapse of the mortgage market, but also then by the exposure of banks and the risks associated with the innovation in financial instruments. In today's episode, I consider all of this, but also providing a foundation then by looking at the nature of capital movements, capital flows, and such. All right, so one of the key errors that law students make is in focusing very much on what we term doctrine. So what is doctrine? Doctrine is the body of rules within a particular field. That body of rules might be contained in statutes, maybe in regulations, in treaties. Some of these will just be then in the writings of legal scholars or in the articulations then of judgments, so the ratios. All of that is doctrine, body of rules, essential for the operation of law, essential for the application of law. At the same time, what we have then are theories, and theories sit alongside doctrine in that theories are the basis for the articulation of the body of rules. To know whether or not you are going to liberalize, to know whether or not you are going to put in place capital controls, depends very much on the theory that is in operation, the system of ideas that is guiding then social relations in that point in time. Now, I've emphasized this to you over the past few weeks, but I am concerned, and this is why I'm making the point now, that there might be a slight misunderstanding on your part. Now, what is that misunderstanding? The shift that has taken place from mercantilism to liberalism. The critique of Marxism that ultimately produced then social democracy or democratic capitalism. The shift away from democratic capitalism and then towards neoliberalism. Each one of these we identify at a specific point in time. We link to a series of scholars, writers, philosophers, politicians, technocrats and such. All of those. But it suggests then that there is a clear demarcation between one period and the next. And what I went to great lengths to demonstrate is that we often have overlap between the different theories that are in operation. So as much as we are liberalizing, there still ends up a mercantile aspiration underpinning it. So we see the coexistence then of a number of theories. So the demarcation usually is not so much a demarcation as it is a point of departure where there is a new theory that is coming to dominate. And as that new theory is introduced, new laws emerge. But as all of you know, having studied law, law is not like closing a book. I don't finish one book and that book ends and now I can move on to the sequel. It's a continual story. And so when studying contract law, studying property law, you will go back to the 1800s 
or even the 1700s. To understand public law, you will go back to the 1600s. So even while new laws are being adopted, old laws are still in place. And those old laws coexist with the new laws, cohabitate, even if the theories underpinning them prove contradictory. Now it is essential to then understand the theory that is underpinning the body of rules, otherwise the body of rules makes little sense. So a body of rules pertaining to borders at a time where we have the free flow of goods, capital, services, only makes sense if I'm trying to restrict the movement of something else. So understanding why I would want to have open borders and closed borders has much to do with understanding the different theories that are in play. So focusing explicitly, and I would probably say glorifying doctrine in the way that many law students do, does you a disservice because you fail to understand how contradictory rules can coexist when they coexist because there are different theories in operation. Now, neoliberalism is essential for understanding financial globalization. It is relevant, yes, to everything else that we've seen so far, matters related to trade, matters related then to commercial activity with markets and resources. Neoliberalism is relevant, but neoliberalism is particularly relevant when it comes to capital. And today's session is on financial globalization. We're going to focus on financial globalization today. In the first part, what I'm going to provide you with is an overview. What is financial globalization? How did it come about? What does it involve? In the second part, we're going to go into right, details, some of the key language that is relevant for your understanding then of financial law. Without this language, current accounts, capital accounts, equity, holdings, bonds, convertibility, these kind of things, it would be impossible for you to understand finance. Some of those words are going to be challenging. Some of the relationships will be complex. We will move slowly just to make sure that you have a good grasp of the framework so that we can then proceed into the third part and in the third part is very much going to be an engagement with all the laws surrounding then the movement of capital. When looking at the International Monetary Fund, as you were expected to do from the readings, when looking at the World Bank, our focus is primarily on the movement then of capital and the rules surrounding it. Neoliberalism provides you with a system of ideas that has created the climate for what we see taking place today. And this then provides a bit of a precursor into our engagement with the World Trade Organization, which we are likely to begin during week seven, so following reading week. But at the same time, some of this on the IMF and the World Bank is likely to spill over into week seven as well. Now, questions about finance have been pervasive since 2008. What happened in 2008? Financial crisis, precisely. 
the financial crisis 2007-2008. And what this, this was brought to light by what was termed the subprime mortgage market. The subprime mortgage market. And effectively, what was a collapse of the subprime mortgage market. Now that then made us aware of the risks of the exposure of banks, the risks, the exposure of banks, associated with what we term financial innovation. We will see a little later, there were a number of innovations in terms of financial instruments, financial assets, and these innovations had become so complex that many people didn't even understand what they owned. So subprime market triggers then greater awareness of the amount of financial innovation. And this drew our attention then to a concept that we studied before, bounded rationality. Now recall what I said to you. There are two types of bounded rationality. We have active and we have passive. Active, I put in place a series of rules so that I can play the game. I need to restrict qualify the type of activities that are permitted so as to create at least the semblance of an even playing field. But then there is also passive form of bounded rationality and that is what I don't know. And situations can become so complex, so complicated, so convoluted that everything appears hazy. And so it's interesting to go back to some of the news stories that emerged in 2007, 2008, when the crisis really picked up steam, and to see then chairs of different central banks turning around and saying, we don't know what is happening. We don't understand. What are we meant to do? So we'll try this, we'll try that. It turns out it's pouring kerosene on a fire. Okay, so what are we going to do instead? And all of this proved to be pretty experimental. And as people realized that everyone in charge didn't know what they were doing, more money was pulled out of the system, intensifying the damage that was being done at the time. Bounded rationality. If the game is played by rules that we don't understand, then these type of crises are inevitable. Now, the present story about finance, specifically international financial law, begins in the 1950s. 1950s, we are again speaking post-Great European Wars. Now, in that post-war period, as I'd said to you before in relation to tariffs on goods, averaging 40%, what we also noticed is significant controls significant controls on the movement of capital. Very difficult to move capital from one state to another. There were also a series of controls over domestic financial markets. So controls in place, the regulation of domestic financial markets, what type of financial instruments can be created, how they could be traded within a domestic frame, but also controls on the inflow and the outflow of capital. 
the movement of capital from one jurisdiction, one state to another was heavily restricted. Now the 1950s ends up being a key point for a couple of reasons, one of which I'll mention now and the other I'll mention later. The reason is this is also the point when we had a large amount of industrial activity, significant manufacturing taking place. Much of this manufacturing happening in the United States, what we were dealing with was a war-based economy and the need then to provide a lot of goods, a lot of services, to engage in much manufacturing to support the war. Now, that saw then a spike in economic activity. But also what happened, we said this before, we had the annihilation of Europe. Uh, Europe had destroyed itself. And so there is a need now for reconstruction. So again, significant economic activity is underway. There is employment, goods are being produced, public works, capital is being taxed. This is happening at the time where we see the rise of democratic capitalism as well. This compromised reached between labor and capital. Considered the golden era of capitalist production. So as all of this activity is happening, remember what we said, capitalism. The aim is ultimately accumulation. A lot of money is being made and a lot of this money is being placed in banks. But now the people who own this money, the banks themselves, are saying we're having difficulty moving it because of the level of controls that are in place. So what emerges all of a sudden are a series of offshore banks. Banks that are themselves removed from national regulatory regimes. So there are a series of rules pertaining to capital movement. There are restrictions then, as I said, in the market for financial instruments within the UK, within France, within the US. And how do we move beyond that? Well, now we start placing our funds in offshore jurisdictions that are removed then. And there were what were termed euro dollars that were primarily being moved. The money that was being used to fund reconstruction in Europe, that in itself was precipitating an accumulation, a significant amount of wealth, and these individuals holding this wealth want to be able to move it so they can do with it what they please. But the restrictions, the national jurisdiction restrictions, national-based ones, preclude them from doing so. They find an alternative. Offshore banks arise. The offshore banks placed pressure on the nation states to liberalize both the domestic markets in financial instruments, but also to relax the capital controls. Otherwise, we risk seeing then increasing levels of capital flight. So this then, we point, as I said, the story of international financial law, the story of financial globalization begins largely in the 1950s. 
as this is happening with the offshore, as we see process by which liberalization takes place in a number of industrialized countries, we see the rise of financial globalization. There are two parts then to financial globalization. The first one, the cross-border flows of financial instruments. Cross-border flows of financial instruments, cross-border flows of capital. So we said before, it's restricted. Now we are seeing an increase in the flows across border. What we are also seeing, and this is the second element then of financial globalization, the integration of capital markets. Capital markets, which were primarily domestic, are now being integrated. The accumulation, the communication, sorry, between these different markets is increasing as are the transactions taking place between them. For that to happen, new laws, new governance systems had to be adopted at the domestic level to allow for the movement of capital, but also at the international level to facilitate the movement of the capital. So on one hand, to allow the outflow of capital, and the inflow, I must change my laws domestically. But it's also essential that I build some type of architecture to intermediate the movement of capital from one jurisdiction to another. So there were certain triggers then to the rise of financial globalization. One I've just mentioned, the reduction in barriers. As we reduced barriers, we would expect to see a rise in these transactions. But of course, the change in rules has to be tied then necessarily to a system of ideas. And of course, this was also the time where neoliberal ideas had begun to grab, um, to acquire currency. These were more pervasive in the 50s and onwards. But also, what I mentioned to you before in terms of one of the revolutions, advances in communication, advances in transport. Without these technological innovations, these technological developments, the movement of capital wouldn't have been possible. So those proved essential then for financial globalization as well. But there were, of course, challenges to this. The predominant one, which I've alluded to over the past few weeks, the regulatory regimes that were in place were nation-state based. Rules pertaining to capital, rules pertaining to financial instruments were articulated by national legislatures. They were made at the domestic level. But these financial markets this new financial architecture that is emerging is itself international. Its aim was to facilitate the circulation of capital. So by definition, it had to be international. That tension itself between regulations at the national level 
but governance and architecture actors operating at the international level proved one of the challenges and remains one of the problems today in the development of what is often termed the IFA, the International Financial Architecture. A second challenge for the rise of financial globalization, what are termed cycles of boom and bust. Cycles of boom and bust. Everything is going well, people are buying homes, they have new flat screen televisions, well, not flat screens back then. Everything is progressing and things are great and we think it can't get any rosier than this. And all of a sudden, 2008, Mount Vesuvius. And we say, wait a second, what happened to the glory days of six months ago? I'm not talking a generation ago, genuinely six months ago. Cycles of boom and bust. That is one of the challenges to the development and we'll explain why in a couple of minutes. And second, or third, sorry, inequality begins to spiral, to soar, however you want to put it. Remember what I said to you last week, following the war, so the second great European war, or just prior to the Great European War, let's go back to the days then of the Great Depression, the top one percentile, so in the UK, in the United States, in major economies, the top one percentile acquired roughly 23 to 24% of national income. That preceded 1929. There's an economist by the name of Robert Wade, I believe he's over at the LSE, who's written extensively on this, if you'd like to read some more about it. 1 to 23, following then the development of this social democratic, ostensibly social democratic, this democratic capitalist model, as we said, the redistribution then, the compromise that was reached between workers, between labor and capital, that share had shrunk to 7%. So it was now 1% the top one percentile earning 7% of national income, meaning there's a larger pool available for distribution to the remaining 99%. With this neoliberal, the emergence of this neoliberal model, inequality begins to grow. And that one to seven, or 1%, top 1% earning 7% of national income, grew to nine, grew to 14, grew to 17, and at the collapse, ready? At the collapse in 2008, was that? Any guesses? 24%, 24%. Imagine that, that seemed to be the sweet spot. That was the threshold before the collapse. So inequality source. So this proves to be a challenge because now it creates resentment. It creates uncertainty. So as soon as a crisis hits, all the investors scurry. And they scurry to other markets, and then what happens to those markets that they have exited, that they have run away from? So these challenges, which we observe, they're developing in real time, creates impetus for the development of the IFA, the International Financial Architecture.
This IFA, we have to understand, is made up of a number of components. And it's made up of these components largely because of the distinction between domestic law and international law. Now, domestic law, very easy to make. We operate largely within a positivist system. As long as I have the lawmaker, as long as they follow the correct lawmaking procedures, then they can make any which law they please. That is the nature of it. Recall this, we studied it with Weber. That is how it can be done. But internationally, now I require some type of agreement, some type of compromise. I have to entreat with other states because of the notion of sovereignty. So a state is sovereign. And a state being sovereign, they can make, they can participate in whichever international legal initiatives they like. Meaning, they can also reject any international legal initiative they like. They themselves decide which laws they wish to be bound by. But this new architecture that is emerging requires some type of cooperation since it is based on interdependence. So this points to another challenge within the development of the IFA, the difference in lawmaking between the domestic and the international. So when looking at the IFA, our first port of call are in fact domestic legal regimes. How are financial instruments regulated at the domestic level in the UK, or today in the EU, tomorrow in the UK. That is the question we're asking, how is it regulated there? So we look at domestic regimes. There are also a number of accounting procedures, protocols that are adopted. These are often what they term soft law. So the expectation then that accountants, this profession of accountants themselves, are engaged in practices in a manner that is understandable to an accountant from somewhere else. So that if I happen to look at the books of this company, this financial company, the information that I can obtain is the same as the information I would obtain elsewhere. That is how we build confidence. That is how we encourage people to invest. And post-2008, anyone heard of Arthur Anderson? Anyone know who Arthur Anderson is? Somebody must. It hasn't been that long. Arthur Anderson, the largest accounting firm in the world. Bankrupt. Overnight. Why? Dubious accounting practices. And with dubious accounting practices, they say, if we have this dubious accounting practices, if you don't abide by the protocols, if you do not play the game by the rules, it becomes impossible for us to have any confidence and that negatively impacts upon investment. So part of this IFA are not just the domestic legal regimes, but also the accountancy protocols. There are a number of others, formal and informal arrangements, there are financial safety nets, but all this to say that the IFA 
has a vast array of tentacles. This is far more than an octopus that we're dealing with. Now, because of all these tentacles that are stretching over the globe, they're going through national regulatory regimes, above them, underneath, often involving private actors, so non-state actors who we have less control over. What we've created then is a monster, a Frankenstein, that is difficult to either decipher, to understand, but also difficult to organize. So if I can't understand it, how do I make tweaks? Where do I make changes? Now we think of the interdependence that has been created in two ways. The interdependence that results then from the globalization of finance happens substantively, substantively. So we think, imagine then the distribution of capital. Where does capital go? Resources are finite. So if resources are being taken out of one state, they're going to end up somewhere else, either in an offshore bank or as an investment elsewhere. So when money begins to leave one locale, it is going somewhere else. So it's important for us to track the flow, these financial flows. These financial flows which have been made possible by the elimination of capital controls. So notice how all these pieces are falling into place. So consider then an easy example. We've heard of the Asian financial crisis. All of a sudden, the Asian tigers are doing great, and then bust. And why bust? Loss of confidence in these markets, capital flight. All the money leaves and goes elsewhere. So as I said, it can be very destructive for those markets that are left behind. Even if it proves a boon, for the market where the capital ends up. So we've created interdependence with regards to substantively the distribution of capital. So think political economy, how is capital distributed? But we've also created interdependence legally, procedurally. The capital flows, these capital movements only work if they are coordinated. They only work if they are coordinated. Give you an easy example. The United States turns around and says, we are now placing an embargo on Iran. And anyone who does any type of economic transactions with Iran will be reprimanded, punished by us, largely by being prohibited from utilizing their domestic capital markets. And what is the response from the world, including the EU? Anyone? How did they respond? Did they say, to hell with the US, we're going to continue trading with the Iranians? Not at all. Why? Well, that's one part of it, certainly. They don't want to lose the relationship with the US. Did you have your hand up? The bargaining power as well. They can place pressure. Also, think of what we were just discussing, the interdependence procedurally. Yes, fair point as well. We term the size then of the economy 
But you'd want to go a little bit further and say that where are these transactions going through? They're either going through the US, the UK, or Japan. Those are the three financial centers in the world. And even the British and Japanese ones go through the United States. So if you were to engage in this type of activity, the US is actually capable of punishing you because of the interdependence that has been achieved through the procedures. I did warn you today was going to be challenging. Now, we have this tension, which I've pointed to, in that we are trying to build an international financial architecture, but at the same time, so we want to liberalize, at the same time, we are dealing with the United States, with the UK, with Japan, with the emergent EU. We are still dealing with nation states, meaning as much as we are trying to liberalize, we also have the conflict between liberalization and mercantilism. I'm still trying to do things in the interest of the nation state. So as much as all of this is happening globally, national actors are still thinking about the well-being of their populations, of their manufacturing sectors. They're still considering employment at the national level. That was not seamless, the shift from mercantilism to liberalism, and it certainly wasn't seamless as the international financial architecture was being developed. So of course, with these problems, with this tension, and with what I mentioned earlier, the cycles of boom and bust, Bretton Woods collapse in the 70s, debt crisis in the 80s, Asian financial crisis in the 90s, Argentinian financial crisis in the noughties, global financial crisis in 2008. It's a move from one crisis to the next. So observing this, we start to ask questions as to whether these crises are the result of flawed regulations or are they endemic to the system? And all we're waiting for, and people have started to talk about whether the next financial crisis is happening this year. So brace yourselves. Each one of these crises was met with some institutional reform. There has been no grand redesign, no step back to construct things anew. Instead, what we have are these piecemeal repairs that are being carried out. So we look and say, there are some flaws in corporate governance. So we have to address that. So here are some new regulations surrounding how a board of directors is established. Are they bound only by uh, maximization of shareholder value or should there be some other element guiding their activities, their decision making? So we address corporate governance. And then we say, there's also this issue of risk management because the banks in the lead up to the financial crisis in 2008 took on too much risk. That subprime market collapse. 
mortgage market collapse. Too much risk was taken on. So now we need to put in place new rules pertaining to risk management. Then we go on and we say, there are some pretty dubious incentives, compensation packages for directors, for bank managers. And this is actually encouraging the indiscretions that we've witnessed that resulted or that at least contributed to the financial crisis. So we change those. But in each one of those instances, we are tweaking the system. And the reason, a key reason we are just tweaking the system, the tweaks are taking place at the domestic level. So the government turns around and says, we just had a collapse of our market here. What am I going to do to prevent this from happening again? We say, ah, I have to address corporate governance. Okay, great. Let me change the rules of corporate governance. But what does a company do if it doesn't like your rules pertaining to corporate governance? Since we've liberalized, it moves. And it moves to a locale that has more favorable rules pertaining to corporate governance. It's as simple as that. So, Sony has its headquarters in the UK, and where is it headed? Anyone know? They announced it about three weeks ago, I think it was. Nope, that's another one. There are plenty. <laughs> Amsterdam. Look at that, they just decided they're moving to Amsterdam. And they go. Dyson, British company. Now moving to Singapore. As simple as that. If I don't like the rules in one locale, because of, precisely because of, the measures that have been adopted, that have liberalized trade in goods, trade in services, trade in capital and financial instruments. Because all of this has been liberalized, companies are footloose, fancy free. They can move from one locale to another. So as much as one state might be perturbed by the developments and the impact these have had, this crisis has had on its domestic population, its ability to intervene is handcuffed by the integration that has been achieved in financial markets. Integration that the states themselves have pursued. So national governments agree through this integration ultimately to cede some of their sovereignty over financial affairs. And they cede this to this international framework. And I keep, notice the language I'm using, architecture, framework governance structures and as law students you quickly picked up the fact that I'm using I'm not using which word okay so let's say you're a little sharper than you are <laughs> <laughs> begins with ah law yes <laughs> very good frameworks uh, structures architecture why am I not saying law that is the catch. All of this is handled through formal and informal arrangements. 
Is a bank a subject of international law? No. Is an investor a subject of international law? No. Is a corporation a subject of international law? No. So since they are not subjects of international law, I can only bind them at the domestic level. But if I've adopted a series of laws, treaties, that allow for the free movement of these companies, the free movement of goods and services and capital, then it means that if that company doesn't like it, it can go elsewhere. So my domestic law itself becomes impotent. I have a desire to adjust the laws in such a way to ensure that there is no flight. So there is this structure that's in place that puts, remember we spoke about this, a type of pressure, remember, organized coercion, Weber, organized coercion. We regard it as legitimate, we comply with it, but whether it's law or not is another question. There is, uh, I'll say this in passing and then I'll jump to the next part, a Greek finance minister, rock star finance minister, right? Some of you have heard of him, Varoufakis, rides a motorcycle, wears a leather jacket, quotes Marx, <laughs> participates in secret society meetings. And he's quite the character. So, former Greek finance minister. Was elected, I think it was 2015, it was? 2015. This was mentioned even in one of your seminars in relation to the Greek financial crisis. Referendum is held in Greece. Population says, no, we don't want more of this neoliberalism. We actually want more social democracy. So we do not want you, our government, to comply with the demands that are being placed upon you by the IMF, by the European Commission, by the World Bank. Varoufakis, Greek finance minister, meets with the EU, meets with a number of finance ministers and says to them, so we have a mandate from the people to do something different here and tries to negotiate something that is different. Now, what was interesting was the response from Wolfgang Schauble, who was the, uh, he was the Greek finance, uh, no, the German finance minister. So I think number four and number five in terms of political power within the EU. Significant. His response, and I'll quote it so I don't make a mistake. Elections cannot be allowed to change an economic program of a member state. Elections, democracy, the people have no say over the economics. It's a fascinating statement. We've covered a little bit on then the basics of the international financial architecture. You understand, I hope, a little bit more now on financial globalization. For the remainder, what we're going to do, we'll take a five minute break now, but for the remainder, what I'm going to cover are some of the language and then following that, the law surrounding it. Since there is some law, even if I was mocking it slightly a few minutes earlier.